I'm going to read all of Isaiah 11 and 12. So 2,700 years ago, a man wrote these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel, when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For Yah, Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to Yahweh, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So just in case you're wondering, if you get a phone call or have been getting phone calls from 657 Two three zero two nine five three nonstop. It's a polling organization nearby, and they will go after you and call and call and call and call and call and call and call. So I'm just warning you on that one. The reason I bring that up is because I was actually like excited to do the survey. I wanted to give my feedback, and 
I'm kind of a little political nerd and junkie, and so I thought it would be fun. They just didn't call at any good times. And then when they did, I had already done the survey, and I was trying to watch a movie with my wife. What did they want to know? They wanted to know what I thought about the direction of our state, about the direction of Anaheim, about the direction of our neighborhood. Um, They asked me opinions about people running for national office, but mostly local office. And um, they wanted to know what I thought about what they were going to do for me and for our community. And they asked a lot of questions, um, many of which sounded something like, are we going in the right direction or are we off track? A lot of us might say regarding different questions in the survey that things are a mess. Certain things in certain aspects of our culture we might describe as a mess. And as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, we've seen that in his time, Um, in the 8th century B.C., that Israel and Judah were a mess. Um, In fact, Israel, at some point during Isaiah's life, was no more. The northern kingdom had been destroyed by Assyria and taken away, and the southern kingdom was threatened. Uh, In Isaiah chapters 1 and 2, we see that the leaders are corrupt. There is no justice. There is no peace. There is only selfishness and injustice and unrighteousness. Um, The world was and is a mess. Uh, You watch the news, um, and if you watch for any length of time, it's sometimes hard to be encouraged, right? It's not usually an edifying process to watch much of the news or maybe to read certain articles. But today, I've got good news. Because as we've read, um, there's a lot of judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope in the book of Isaiah, and today is almost entirely hope. So to, <laughs> fist pump, all right, yes. So today is um, just a fantastic passage, two chapters, on some really, really good news. So we want to see what the Lord has for us. You'll remember last time that Pastor Ron preached, we were in Isaiah chapters 9 and 10. And at the end of chapter 10, there was this picture of a forest. Picture of a forest um, that had been destroyed, burned, and chopped down so that all that was left were stumps. And you think stumps are fairly useless if you're trying to be a forest. Um, They're fairly useless if you're trying to grow anything. And that was where we left off. In fact, verse 34 of chapter 10, right before uh, chapter 11 says, He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So there's this picture of a forest being chopped down. And that brings us right into chapter 11. And we'll see in point number one, the spirit-filled shoot will rule with righteousness. The spirit-filled shoot will rule with righteousness. And that's the first five verses here. And I use the word shoot um, because the Bible does, or at least the English Standard Version does. But it's also really helpful because of what it means with some of uh, the other concepts we'll be studying later in the chapter. So the spirit-filled shoot will rule with righteousness. In chapter 7, we saw a king of Judah who's not ruling with righteousness, Ahaz. And Isaiah went to Ahaz and had a word from the Lord, and Ahaz didn't trust the Lord, he didn't lean on the Lord, he didn't believe the Lord. And so the Lord's blessing only came in abbreviated fashion to Ahaz. Ahaz, if you'll read in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, was not a good king. He did not rule in righteousness or with justice. And so it's against the background of this wicked king, Um, and who his father and grandfather and great-grandfather have had checkered pasts. It's against that background 
that we see this king, who's already been presented to us in in chapter 9. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And now we come back to that picture. So with that background, look at chapter 11, verse 1. It's future-oriented. We're looking now to the future. There shall be. And it is not um, an undetermined future. It is not a possibility. It is a future in which God um, is working and has seen and has acted. You'll see behind me on the screen while I'm preaching um, some of the highlights. So some of you that are doing the highlighters that Pastor Ron um, started, you'll see that on your notes uh, the different, what the different colors mean. And I have just on the side of the text put that color. It's a mainly just one or two colors this week. So verse 1, Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So just like the stumps we saw at the end of chapter 10, now there's a stump, and it's almost like it has a little nameplate on it. Jesse. Jesse's stump. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you will uh, realize that Jesse is the father of David, great King David. And if you didn't know that, um, that's why we have some wonderful resources and maybe perhaps on your Bible app you can look that up and find uh, where this is mentioned back in 1 Samuel. But Jesse is the father of David. And it's very interesting that it does not say the stump of David, it says the stump of Jesse. And if you remember back to the story... Uh, Jesse's not anyone of consequence. He's in the tribe of Judah. He lives in a little town outside Jerusalem called Bethlehem. And he's got a bunch of sons. There's nothing really spectacular about him or his family. So why mention Jesse? Or why not just skip Jesse and go straight to David? Well, there's, there's some different thoughts on that. But perhaps it is because of that very fact that he was a man of no consequence. He wasn't um, a mighty man in Saul's Israel at the time. He was an old man and was just unspectacular. Perhaps this is why it refers to the stump of Jesse, because it's going back to the origins of the greatest king of Israel and Judah. Humble origins of the king David. David was the youngest son. Um, David was the one who Jesse didn't even bother to call in when Samuel came. Do you remember that story? David's out in the fields doing what? He's watching the sheep, which is not, you know, the, the greatest job, and it's not really high up there on the thing you want to put on your resume, um, which is interesting because David will use it as his resume in the chapter following that in First Samuel. But he didn't call him in. David's older brothers are strong, they're tall, they're handsome. Um, And David actually is the one that God chooses. It seems that God has a knack for that, if you think through the stories of the Bible. Um, Picking the ones that no one else would choose. Gideon, not really anything spectacular uh, about this guy. Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are great names, but if we read their stories, they're actually not great guys. Um, And they keep falling into the same habits and sins And they're just not anything spectacular except that God chose them. So as we look back, there's a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which means this stump, which for all intents and purposes is dead, there's no future for this stump. It may stick around for a long time, but it's not going to grow back into a towering tree. And yet from the stump, there's growing a shoot, a sprig. There is a branch coming out, which is used in the next Sentence: A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There's hope. 
even in the, the forest that has been cut down, there's still hope because the Lord is going to act. And we note that this shoot in the in 1A is then given a masculine uh, pronoun in 1B. His, his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord, in verse 2, shall rest upon him. So this is referring to a man who is to come. And by the way, in case you were wondering, while you were looking at your Bible and I was reading and you didn't see Yahweh in there at all, and I kept saying it, just a reminder that when LORD is in all caps in the Old Testament, that is translating the Hebrew name Yahweh for God. So I'm going to try to do that. That is God's personal covenant name. Here is the spirit now, verse 2, of Yahweh. The spirit of Yahweh, the, the breath, the wind of Yahweh. And it's, of course, given a capital S, because as we know the rest of Scripture, um, we see that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is God. And here, the Spirit is going to rest upon this shoot from the stump of Jesse. In fact, that's very interesting language, because if we turn to Matthew 3.16, which you, you ought to do later this afternoon, it's the baptism scene of Jesus. And at Jesus' baptism, his cousin John the Baptist um, is persuaded to dunk him, even though he feels like it should be the opposite, the other way around. And as Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes and it says, rests upon him. The exact same wording. That the Spirit rests upon Jesus. Now, of course, when this was written, Jesus is 700 years in the future, but that's the point. The point is, we're looking forward, we're looking ahead to someone who is to come. And Israel should have been looking for someone to come, because all throughout the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 3, and in other places throughout, there's a promise of someone to come. In Genesis 3, it's an offspring, a descendant seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the snake. That is the promise that is given. And then even the the covenant to David. David's promised an everlasting kingdom and that someday one of his sons will sit on the throne forever. And of course that didn't happen. In fact, Solomon's son turned the nation uh, away from God and then the nation split into two. The northern kingdom never had a good king. The southern kingdom only had a sprinkling of good kings. And by the end of the Old Testament, we haven't had a king for a few centuries. So how is this promise to be kept? Well, this is the promise of what is going to happen. This person that is to come, this shoot, is going to have the spirit of Yahweh resting upon him. And how is the spirit described? Well, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Three couplets describe the spirit and what he is going to give to the shoot. So back in December last year, we were still in the Names of God series, and I actually um, covered this passage in the Names of the Holy Spirit. And as I went back and looked at some of those notes and looked at this passage, Uh, The Holy Spirit here is actually giving this shoot that is to come these attributes. So what Isaiah is doing is giving the qualifications of the future king, the king to come. What kind of king are we going to get? Remember, Ahaz is not a good king. He's already been shown in chapter 7 to be a wimp. He doesn't trust the Lord. He's kind of wavering between two positions. And yet this king who is to come is going to be one who has wisdom and understanding, the opposite of King Ahaz. He's going to have the spirit of counsel and might upon him. He's going to have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. 
These are all things that throughout Scripture, and especially in the book of Proverbs and some in the Psalms, are meant to be the attributes that a godly man will possess. So the promise here is that you're going to get a competent, godly man who's going to lead in the future. This is hopeful. This is hopeful. I titled the message this morning, A Messiah for This Mess. In the midst of the mess, a Messiah was promised. Now, Messiah um, is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means anointed one. Uh, Messiah is the Hebrew term. Christ is the Greek term. So Christ and Messiah. We're saying Jesus Messiah this morning. Um, Oftentimes we refer to Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. It means anointed one. And if you think back to the Old Testament, who were the ones that were anointed? Well, actually, the Old Testament uses the term Messiah for all the kings that were anointed. So Saul was a type of Messiah. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel. And when he's anointed, the picture is that the Holy Spirit comes on him. Um, As the oil is poured over him and trickles through his hair and down his beard and onto his shoulders, it represents um, the Holy Spirit coming upon that leader to empower him to lead. You'll remember that when Saul turns away from the Lord, the Spirit leaves Saul. And when David, little David, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old David, when he's anointed by Samuel, the wording is, the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him. As the oil rushes down his body, the Holy Spirit rushes upon David to give him the power to someday be a great king. And so all the kings following David would have been messiahs. They were all anointed ones. They were all appointed to rule. And so um, although the wording is not necessarily used here, it will be used later in Isaiah, and it's used throughout the Old Testament in various contexts, this messiah they were looking forward to, this king who was to come. Well, what else do we know about this king? Verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. And it's very interesting because that word delight comes from Uh, The verb to smell. So it's like what we're about to do as soon as this guy stops talking and we go in there and we walk through the doors and competing with the smells of the old floor will be the scent of food. Right? The scent of food and we'll smell it and it will delight us. We will be delighted. That's the picture here. Not the, the nose part, but the delighting that that response his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. It's almost like the fear of Yahweh makes him excited like a hungry person is excited to eat. So this king that is to come will be excited by fearing Yahweh. And both Psalms and Proverbs tell us that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Which is exactly what they need in a king. They need one who fears Yahweh, who fears the Lord, because that is where wisdom begins. Do you delight in the fear of Yahweh? Well, I'm not going to be a king, pastor. I mean, I'm, I'm just me. Well, you're a Christian, right? You're a little anointed one. You're a follower of the anointed one. And so this ought to be um, our desire to delight in the fear of Yahweh, that our delight would be in the fear of Yahweh, not in the fear of man, that we would love to fear the Lord in a way that means we, we begin to gather wisdom and we begin to live life in awe and reverence of the Creator. This king who is to come, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, verse 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And again, this goes back to David. Do you remember when Samuel's there and he's listening to 
uh, what the Lord is saying? Because he walks in, he sees Abinadab, and he says, wow, that dude could be a good king. He'd be a good replacement for Saul. And the Lord says, eh, nope. And then he says, you're judging by outward appearances. And then he tells Samuel, a very important thing that's important for all of our lives, is that the Lord judges by what? By the heart, by your character, by what's inside. And so that's why David was chosen and not Abinadab. And we'll see that later on in the story of David. Abinadab gets jealous that his little brother comes out to see the front lines. And then you can only imagine how he'd feel after his little brother felled the giant in the field. Oh, man. Any firstborn can feel that pain. Little brother just won. And I didn't. This is the way that this shoot, this coming Messiah, will... It's not that he's going to close his eyes and put his hands in his ears, but it's the picture of, of justice, right? You see the, the, um, the statues of Lady Justice will have blindfolded, right? Um, and holding the scales. It's because um, there's more than just outward appearance that leads to justice. Um, there's more to uh, the act. There's more to the crime. There's more to the life than what our eyes can see and what our ears can hear. Verse 4 says, Not like that, but like this he will judge with righteousness. Or you could just say rightness, with moral rectitude, with the right way to judge. That's how he shall judge the poor. And at this time in Israel's history, the poor and the outcast are being stomped down. Um, they are being crushed under the heel of the rich, who are um, not, sin, not sinning because they're rich, but sinning because they're using their riches to destroy the poor and to keep their riches coming. In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 7, 700 years later, says to his disciples, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus fulfills this. He lives this out. He lives out this prophecy 700 years before. And so, if you knew Isaiah, and you were a follower of Jesus, or you were around at the time of Jesus, and you were reading Isaiah, you remembered Isaiah, but wow, this is just like what Isaiah said, he wouldn't have said in chapter 11. But he said, this is what Isaiah said that the coming shoot, the coming king would do. He would judge with right judgment. Not only that, verse 4b, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's a weird picture. It's not really usually a good thing to hold a rod in our mouth and fight. So what is, what's the picture? The picture is not um, a, a literal rod in, in the mouth. It is the symbolism of how powerful his words are. The words that come out of his mouth act like the scepter of the king. This is power. Can you imagine? Uh, we, don't, we don't think of it like this. We, we think, um, right, teenage boys, we, we want to watch a movie where there's a buff guy with a gun or a sword or a club and he's just beating the tar out of people, right? Oh, yeah, it's, that's manly. That's power. You know what's more powerful? Is when that guy walks in the same scene and says, die, and everyone falls over. That's more powerful. That's more powerful than the sword, <laughs> okay? And that's what the picture is, is that this one to come is going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. <sighs> Same word for spirit, by the way. Breath, wind. By the breath of his mouth he'll slay the wicked. They don't stand a chance. This is the picture we see not of Jesus um, in his first coming, but at Jesus' second coming, Revelation 19 says, Jesus comes on a horse, with armies, he's dressed in linen, his name is tattooed on his thigh, and he comes in, and there's a big army gathered, and Jesus 
kills them all with the words of his mouth. He fulfills this exactly by defeating his enemies with the words of his mouth. This is real power. This is righteous power. This is just power. And it's it's, uh, finished up here in verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins, which is awkward to say, but what this picture is, it actually might be a picture of his undergarments. Whatever it is, it's the, it's the, the case of your belt um, completes your outfit. It prepares you, especially in a day where they wore robes. Um, it helped to keep things so that you could move and not trip around. Um, and then it also, by, by talking about perhaps being the undergarments, it's the most intimate part of the clothing that the king would wear. And this king's intimate clothing would be faithfulness. And right, w- w- the point is not that he wears weird underwear. The point is that everything about the most intimate details of this man's life is righteous and faithful. I mean, isn't that what we want in a leader? Someone who's defined by, in the, in the secret parts, in the secret times, when no one else is around, defined by righteousness and faithfulness. This is what we need. This is why our hope is not in our government. Our hope can never be in our government. Our hope can never be in any government. Which is not to say that we don't participate in our government if given the chance. But it is to say that one day a perfect king will come. By the way, democracy is for a limited time, right? Monarchy is the best way and it's going to be the way for eternity when we worship King Jesus. There's not going to be a Congress. There will be a righteous and faithful king who will do things the right way. This is what we look forward to. And this is what the people in Isaiah's time needed to look forward to because they didn't have anything at the present. They were, they were pressured from the outside and their leaders were unjust. So that leads us to point number two. In verses six through nine, the shoot's kingdom will be defined by peace. The shoot's kingdom will be defined by peace. It's interesting that this seems to... Um, be a favorite verse of many, many, many social justice warriors because it is such a good scene. It is such a good scene. The wolf dwelling with the lamb. That doesn't happen in case you're just not an animal person. (laughs) That doesn't go on. Leopards don't lie down with young goats. They feast on young goats. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf don't go together unless it's a Disney film. And little children should never be in the same place as a calf, a lion, and a fattened calf. That's just not wise stewardship, right? Go play with the big deadly animals. So what's, what's the picture here? The picture is of absolute shalom. Real wholeness and peace. Um, this is similar to what um, the song we sing at Christmas says, right? He comes to make his blessings flow where? far as the curse is found. The animal kingdom is cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin. And as far as the curse is found, this coming king will bring peace so that the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. I'm I'm not really into zoology. I don't know this, but one of the commentators said that lions aren't even able to eat straw like an ox. It's not part of how God made them um, to be except for prior to the fall, right? At the fall, things are are twisted and changed, but this picture is of God's glorious animals feasting together, not needing to tear each other apart and kill. 
And of course, the, the, the extent of all this, all these animals named, shows us um, that the entire creation will be at peace. And it's not just the, the, the lack of hostilities. Um, it, is, it is more than that. It's not just a, neg- it's not just a, a, a lack of something. It's, it's, a, it's something better in its place. That peace reigns and rules. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. That doesn't, that's not good parenting, right? I saw a cobra go down in that hole. Go play. Roll the ball over by the cobra's hole. That's not good. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is an, uh, an earth we're not familiar with, that we know nothing of. Verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The mountain refers to Zion, um, which in the time of Isaiah referred to Jerusalem, but it's, it comes to have this meaning, especially as we go through the book of Isaiah, where it, it comes to mean like all of the place where God rules through his Messiah, which eventually, as we'll see later in this verse, is the whole earth. So I think there's a case here where Zion is Jerusalem. It does represent um, God's special place on earth. But that when this occurs, that there will be worldwide peace stemming from Jerusalem. Now, verses 6 through 9 are um, often debated. And I'm not going to dive too deeply into um, end times debates today. But um, I believe that this probably refers to the millennium and the millennial reign of King Jesus. Um, that after uh, Jesus returns to take his own, and there's a seven-year tribulation and Antichrist um, rules and reigns, that Jesus comes, Adam's in Revelation 19, crushes his enemies, and then sets up his rule on earth so that this is fulfilled. Look at the end of verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh. How full? As the waters cover the sea. Like really full, <laughs> totally full, completely full. Can you imagine the knowledge of Yahweh like the oceans covering the entire sea? This is what's to come. In fact, this is the exact same wording in Habakkuk 2.14. That someday, someday, the knowledge of Yahweh will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is something to look forward to because that is not the case. The knowledge of Yahweh does not cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's why we are a missions-oriented church. Because we want to feel and taste um, a foretaste of what this is going to be. So that all peoples throughout the world hear of the knowledge of Yahweh. Point number three gets us to the last half of chapter 11. The root's remnant will return. The root's remnant will return. And this is uh, taken again from chapter 10. Chapter 10, there was a remnant that's returned to God. Specifically in chapter 10, it seems to be a a return of worship, um, a a spiritual return. In chapter 11, there seems to be uh, an additional metaphor is that there will be spiritual return and that spiritual return will also come in physical return to the land which makes sense. Um, As you read your Bible and as you get into um, the book of Deuteronomy specifically, there are blessings and curses that God gives for his people. Specifically under that Mosaic covenant, which we are not under, if the people of God obeyed and trusted him and did what he said, there would be blessings. If they did not, there would be curses. And one of those curses was that they would be kicked out of the land. They would be ejected from the promised land. 
So the picture here is of a future where they are out of the promised land. And we'll see that, that this, this shoot, this root now of Jesse will stand as a signal for the people. So you'll notice that point number three is not shoot anymore, it's root. Which, if you're following this, here's a stump in a field. There's a shoot coming out of the stump. Now verse 10, now we've got a root. The shoot's going this way. Where are the roots? Down, underground, right? In fact, um, the stump is still alive because of the roots, right? That's the only way there can be a shoot. So did Isaiah get his metaphors mixed here? What's going on? Well, this is really interesting. Um, it is it is repeated at the very end of the book of Revelation as well um, that that Jesus is called this root and shoot of Jesse. Goes back all the way to the time of Jesse again and the father of David. One commentator said the Messiah is the root cause of his own family tree. Pending the day when within that family he will shoot forth. So this is actually, if, if you look at it closely, this is a, a good argument, good evidence that Jesus is God. Because he is the root of Jesse, 1000 BC. And he is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, AD, right? Thousand years later. Here's, here's Jesus, the Messiah we know from reading the New Testament, who is the root of Jesse and the shoot of Jesse. He's the source and the result at the same time. That's incredible. Boom, mind blown, right? That's incredible. And we have, we, we, there's a lot of study that goes into to looking into all this, but, but just simply, this is incredible. That somehow, this shoot that is to come, this is all future-oriented, right? Someday in the future, this shoot will come, this king will come, and he's also the root. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. That is very similar language to chapter 2. Go look in Isaiah chapter 2 later. Very similar language to the peoples being drawn like a magnet to Zion. Why? Because Yahweh is their teaching. Who? Yahweh. God. Now, very, very similar language that the nations will come to the glorious resting place and of him, the root of Jesse, shall the nations inquire. So in chapter 2, they're going to inquire of Yahweh and in chapter 11, they're going to inquire of the Messiah. Which again is, is, is more strong evidence that this coming one is not merely human. And, and we saw that in Isaiah chapter 7 too, this promise of the virgin conceiving. This, this one who would come in chapter 9 who is the wonderful counselor. He's, he's the prince of peace. He's the everlasting father. Okay? This is incredible. This is who this, this amazing one to come is. And chapter, verse 10 says, in that day. Verse 11 says it again. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. There's debate about what the second time is. Is this the second time that the remnant comes back from captivity? Or is it a second exodus? See, the most important event in Israelite history is the exodus from Egypt. If you read the Old Testament, they continually look back on it. It's the Passover celebration, right? Every year. Um, it, is, it is talked about in, throughout the prophets, in the Psalms. It's looked back upon all the time, even in the years following the exodus. The exodus is this huge event 
The salvation of God's people coming out from under slavery, leading, going towards the promised land. In fact, there's Exodus language here as we continue to move too. And so I don't know exactly where I come down on this, but I think there is definitely this, this greater Exodus language. Like he's, God's going to do it again. And it's going to be even better this time. Verse 12 says he will raise a signal for the nations. It's, it's like um, a big, a big sign, a big banner, like at, um, at a, at a war, at a battle, right? The banner that, that identifies this side. And if you go back in chapter five, God was going to do this to draw the nations to come judge Israel. This time, the banner will be to call the nations to come join Israel. This is missions. <laughs> this is the drawing of God's, uh, of people to God. So, what's he going to do? Verse 12, he'll assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah. Where? From the four corners of the earth. Which is another way of saying from everywhere, from anywhere. And in verse 11, we see that it's from Assyria, the north, from Egypt and Cush, from the south, from Pathros, and from the islands, uh, from Hamat to the, to the east, from all the corners of the globe around Israel. God is going to draw people. In verse 13, he uses this picture of Ephraim, which stands for the northern kingdom. Ephraim was the primary northern tribe. Ephraim is the tribe that Joshua came from. Um, Ephraim was just north of, Ju- well, it was Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim. That's the land they were given. Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the north. Judah was the dominant tribe in the south. And here, Ephraim and Judah will stop fighting. No more harassing each other. No more jealousy. No more competition. Verse 14, they shall, the, the picture is together, swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They're going to cut off Edom and Moab and the Ammonites and they'll obey Israel. Verse 15, Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. The tongue is probably referring to the Red Sea. Um, oftentimes, um, if, if a body of water looks like uh, it's, it's coming out like a tongue, it'll be called a tongue because when you're talking about rivers, you're talking about a mouth of a river, the source of a river. You have all these different terminologies and oftentimes they'll be called a tongue. And so the tongue is probably of the Sea of Egypt, is probably the Red Sea, which takes us back to the Exodus when the Israelites crossed. But watch what God's going to do this time. He'll wave his hand over the river, which is now probably not the Nile. Now it's probably referring to the Euphrates, because usually in, in Near East they call the Euphrates the river. Like just, it's that big, it's that important, it's just the river. Um, we don't live in a place like that. Right? We live in a place where people like my wife, who's from New England, where there are actual rivers, find that the, the bridges down here say like the Los Angeles River. And you're like, where? <laughs> We're talking about a river, a huge, life-sustaining, year-round river. And God's going to wave his hand over it, this scorching breath, and kind of strike it into seven channels, make a delta of it. So where it's deep and it's hard to cross, now God is going to make it crossable. Very similar language to the Exodus when Moses... By the way, the movies have Moses, right? Moses comes out and goes, right? Charleston has... I mean, Moses comes out and the waters go up and, the, and, and that happened. But if you read closely, all night long, the night before, a, a, a wind is blowing. A wind is blowing and gathering the waters up so that the children of Israel will cross. Well, here a wind is blowing. A wind is blowing. Scorching breath. Same word as wind or spirit. Strikes it into seven channels why he will lead the people across in sandals. 
if you go across a river, you take your sandals off so you have a better way to swim, right? You ever tried swimming in your shoes? It's just, unless they're water shoes, it doesn't work very well, right? They kind of weigh you down. It doesn't, it's not effective. So the picture here is you don't need to swim. You don't need to take your sandals off. You're just going to walk. Where there once was a mighty river, you'll walk across. Now, all of this is so hard to interpret because is it symbolic? Is it literal? Yes and yes, and how, how are we supposed to interpret all of these things? And it gets really tricky. It gets very tricky as we dive into these things. And so I think that, that um, were, were we to have more time, we could kind of parse out what is obviously symbolic language without any literal counterpart, and then also see where there are certainly literal events um, prophesied here. So look at verse 16. This brings us to a prime example. There will be a highway from Assyria. Assyria was northeast of um, the land of Israel. So he says there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So when they came from Egypt to the promised land, they came from the southwest. When they come back from Assyria, they're coming from the northeast, like a diagonal back to the land of Israel. Is there literally going to be a highway? And we think highway, and we think like three lanes, uh, maybe a carpool lane even. Uh, this, is not, this is not that, right? This is a cleared space so that wheels can go on wagons and possibly chariots so that you are not walking through um, deep sand. It is a maybe paved, maybe just flattened highway. It, it, it means that there's transportation. There's a, an available way to get from the place where they were back to the land. This is brought up again in chapter 19 um, that we'll see next week, um, is that there's this highway, and it actually, it actually functions as not just a highway for Israel to get back, but it functions as a highway for the nations to come and hear God's word. We sang um, a song, we're going to sing another song. Uh, we're going to sing the same song about missions and about all over the world. The song is resounding, not just um, in Israel, not just in quote-unquote Christian America, but all over the world, wherever the tribes and tongues and nations and peoples have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is where God will be saving his people. There's so much here, but I just want to make one little note. When we're studying eschatology, when we're studying the, the study of the end times, we like the end times, right? If I say we're going to we're going to teach through a certain book. People might get excited. If I say Revelation, everyone's there and everybody's got 75 questions. We love thinking about this. I think it's possibly because we want to get out of the mess, right? So it's not, sometimes we sing Jesus, hurry. And the point is more Jesus, hurry. I don't like what's going on around here rather than Jesus, hurry. I want to see you. I don't know if you felt that before. Jesus, hurry, come get us. This place is lousy. Or Jesus, come get us. We want to be with you. There's a little bit of a difference there. Um, we got to be careful. But when we study the end times and eschatology, sometimes we want to be right. We want to know more facts. We want to know more terms. Are you pre-trib or post-mill or a, a mill? Like for, uh, for grain? What is that? So we, we kind of want to sound smart. Here's the point of eschatology. I, um, so I don't know where I got this from a long time ago, but eschatology is for ethics, E for E. Eschatology is for ethics. If you read closely, in the New Testament especially, God is concerned not merely with giving us facts about the end so that we can reconstruct everything and have our chart be perfect. But God wants us to know what's coming so that right now our lives will be different. 
Second Peter 3, this is probably worth turning to. Second Peter 3 is, is Peter writing about the end. He gives us some, some great details, some helpful details about what's going to happen with the day of the Lord. How it's going to come, the heavens passing away with a roar. But verse 11, he follows up all these amazing end times um, prophecies by saying, in verse 11 of Second Peter chapter 3, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be? Ones with the right charts. Nope. In lives of holiness and godliness. So eschatology is to spur us on, it's to be a motivator for us to be godly and holy. That's what it's for. Listen, if we argue um, endlessly about end times and and different positions, and forget that people are going to die and go to hell if we don't reach them with the gospel at the end times, when things are dissolved, when Jesus comes to judge, then we missed it. We missed it. I mean, are we going to stand around in heaven and say, ha ha, see, I was right. Or are we going to be busy praising the Lord, surrounding his throne with people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue? That's what we long for. That's what we look for. So when we talk about eschatology, it's good to study it. It's good to get into the details. But don't miss out on the purpose. It's for our actions and our discipleship. Okay, lastly, chapter 12. The remnant responds with rejoicing. i got three R's there for you. The remnant responds with rejoicing. And chapter 12 is just six verses, and it's basically a psalm. Um, and, and it's not complicated. It sounds just like a lot of the psalms, and it is a response it is a subjective response to the objective work that God has done. Here is God, the one saving his people. And here are his people praising their God. You will say, in that day, there's that word again, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. That's a biblical theme all throughout, right? God's anger and his wrath at sin. And yet, the, good, the great good news that we have is that God's anger and wrath was poured out on Jesus so that we might not be judged, but be comforted. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. And then this beautiful picture in 2b, if you look at closely at your Bible, look at, look at verse 2, the second half. Lord God, the, both words are in all caps. You see that? Both words, Lord God. In Hebrew, it says Yah, Yahweh. Um, most scholars think it's like a nickname for God. And like, oh, God doesn't have nicknames. It's like this tender, endearing word. Like this personal relationship. Okay, where, where, you know, you have pet names for your significant other or for your kids or for your, you know, you call your grandma, whatever you call her, you know, not grandma because that's too boring. You got to call her... Moopsie, I don't know what you, you know, we have, we have these, we have these ways that we, that we, that we, um, we communicate tenderness and affection and love by giving nicknames. And it's like, it's like the singers say, Yah, Yahweh, our God, personal God, he has a name. Yah, Yahweh, he is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And this picture of verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In the Middle East, you have to have a source of water or you're toast. You have to have a source of water. So the picture here is this deep, deep well. There's a well at Beersheba that you can go see right now. Um, and it's like 200 feet down. It's like one of those ones where you look around, make sure no one's watching. You drop a rock, 
and it's so far down there. Why? Because they need water to live. It's essential for life. They've got to go find it and get it. The picture here is, with joy, you're going to draw water from the well of salvation. The, 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 the salvation well is so full, there's plenty for all. And you will say in that day, give thanks to Yahweh. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the church people. Is that what it says? No. Make known his deeds among the peoples, the nations, those who've never heard. Make his deeds known. Sing praises to Yahweh, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Just, just let, me, let, me, let me say this really quick. If, what is, if, if chapter 11 is true, that God is, is, is going to fulfill his promises to provide a righteous and just king, then we can't sit back and go, cool. That's fun. How's my 401k doing? Whoa, no, no, come back, come back. Long-term perspective here. Like, your 401k will not be around in 100 years, okay? But in 10,000 years, you will be around. You will be around. What will you be doing in 10,000 years? I hope it'll sound a lot like the rehearsal we're having right now. That this is, a, my, my, my music pastor used to say as growing up, this is just a rehearsal for the great choir we'll be a part of in heaven. And some of you are like, oh man, <laughs> you're going to sing beautifully though. It's going to be fantastic. You'll be a whole lot better singer than you are now. So we're going to practice, okay? This is practice. This is a response to God. He is our salvation, so we sing to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how great you are. You have become our salvation. You are our strength and our song. We thank you for how good you have been to us. And we thank you most for your sending Jesus to this earth to fulfill these prophecies, to be the shoot of Jesse who came to this earth, lived the life that we should have lived, that we we tried to live but couldn't, died the death that we deserve to die, and rose again triumphant over Satan, sin, and death. And now he sits at your right hand, ruling and reigning, and we ask you, Jesus, to hurry and come back. We look forward to the day when we are free from sin, free from worry, free from pain and sorrow and disability, and that we might live together in the new heavens and the new earth with a restored creation, worshiping you um, perfectly as our life for eternity. And so as we look forward to that day, help us to stay on mission to help tell others about this good news. So Lord, make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all and establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. In his name, Jesus' name we pray, amen.